Well, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that we are walking through the book of Revelation very slowly, and we have been going chapter by chapter. However, today we're actually going to take on two chapters uh, because for some reason, the whole passage is spread out over two chapters, and so you're just going to have to deal with it this morning. But as I told choir, I'm hoping that I can do this at a 30,000-foot like overview instead of getting into the weeds like I normally do every week. And so if you have a Bible with you or if you want to grab a pew Bible, this morning we're going to be reading Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9. That's where we find ourselves this morning. And fun, fun thing, I'm going to give you a little illustration this morning, which I know you've never seen me do. And so hopefully you can see it. Hopefully it'll bring a little bit of clarity uh, to one of the things that I talked about earlier about the way that we need to be reading Revelation and understanding it. But let us, before we read this passage, let us quickly go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will start our reading in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. Good and gracious God, as we gather again as the body of Christ, Lord, as you have set your seal upon us, your Holy Spirit within us, that as we read this text, we would understand that it is not toward your church, but it is toward those who have set themselves up as enemies of your kingdom. And Lord, that we should read this and be encouraged by who you are as our God, as our sovereign king, and the work that Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. Lord, lead us this morning. Open our hearts and our ears to hear what it is that you have to say. It's in the glorious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, bear with me because it is two chapters. It's a little lengthy, and that's why I do encourage you to have a Bible open so that you don't get lost in how lengthy it is this morning. But here we go, Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9, starting in 8-1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense went up with the prayers of the saints out of the angel's hand before God. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures were in the sea. Those which had life died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. 
And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked and heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. Then the fifth angel sounded. Then I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to earth, and the key of the pit of the abyss was given to him. And he opened the pit of the abyss, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will never find it. And they will long to die, and death flees from them. And the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses running to battle." And they have tails like scorpions and stings. And in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as kings over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, his, he has the name of Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who have been bound at the gate of the river Euph Euphrates. And the four angels were released who had been prepared for the hour and day and month of the year, so that they would kill a third of mankind. And the number of the armies of the horsemen who was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw the vision, the horses, and those who sit on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of the lions, and out of their mouths come fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and smoke and brimstone which came out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold, of silver, and of brass, and of stone, and of wood, which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor of their sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. Whew. 
Okay. All right. Where do we begin? Well, let me start by talking about what it is that we are seeing in this passage. Because I told you when we started reading about the seven seals, that there were seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And that as we read them, we should understand them not as some chronological timeline of things that happen in a certain order, but as recapitulations of one another. In other words, that as we read them, we should see them as visions building upon the previous vision, or in other words, a vision intensifying the previous vision. And so one way to think about this, and here's why I have a whiteboard today, when we first heard, we heard about the seven seals. I'm going to just write the number seven. The seven seals. And this is why I don't do visuals. My handwriting is awful. So we have the seven seals. We get the first vision, and we kind of see the judgment and the wrath of the Lord that's happening until we get to the worship that happens in chapter 7, the worship of the Lamb when all of us come back together and the judgment is done, right? So we kind of get that first kind of vision of what's happening. Well, then we come into chapter 8 and chapter 9, and then what we get is we have to actually have to think of it as a similar vision of the same thing, but just more intense. So then we hear of the seven trumpets. And so it's the same vision, but more intense. In fact, maybe it would be better if we went downward, because that's intensifying. So we have seven seals, and then seven trumpets, and then the final is going to be the seven bowls. And all we're getting is a more intensified vision of the last, a recapitulation, a recapturing of what we've already seen. One way that I like to talk about this or think about this is uh, a few years ago, and by a few I mean several because my timeline is never right, and it was probably actually 2008 that this movie came out. There was a movie called Vantage Point, and this movie was about uh, an assassination attempt made on the president while he was visiting Spain or something or other. But the whole premise of the movie is that in order to figure out who the culprit was that tried to assassinate the president is that they actually had to have several different perspectives, several different vantage points of what was taking place. And so this is kind of like that. We're getting different perspectives, different vantage points of what is happening in the last days, what is happening as judgment is being poured out on the earth. Another way to think about it is the seven seals took place from a really earthly perspective, right? We saw the four horsemen that were released that went out, and we saw the, 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 the mountains doing their own kind of thing. Well, then we kind of see that at the bottom, so from an earthly perspective, and then we take one spiral up, and we start to see the seven trumpets, and then we take a final spiral up to all of heaven for the seven bowls. And so each perspective is actually from a, a different vantage point. One is kind of earthly. One is kind of from a, 
a heaven and earth dynamic, and then the last is heaven on heaven dynamic. What's taking place between heavenly entities, between the, the, the divine workers of God and the divine workers of evil. And so each one is a step up in intensity, but also in magnification of the perspective from where it is happening. Does that make sense? And so, like, let me write down here. So earth is the seven seals, so really a worldly perspective. This is uh, between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. And this is just a pure judgment between spiritual realms, heaven. We're going to see earth take a role in it because earth definitely has a place in the final judgment, but this is really the work of heaven on heaven action. So we have earthly action, heaven and earth action, and heaven action. And the way that we can see this right here in this way is actually if you turn to chapter 8, verse 13, it says, then I looked and I heard an eagle flying, where? In mid-heaven. So a place taking place between earth and heaven. And so we see this, this heaven-earth dynamic that's taking place. And so that's where we are today in the seven trumpets. We're, we're getting an intensified view of what's happening. And we're also seeing a, a different view, perspective between heaven and earth as to what is happening in the final judgment. And so that's where I want us to start, is to have this, this in our heads, that what we're reading is not chronological. It's not going seven seals, and then a little bit later in time, we have the seven trumpets, and then a little bit later in time, we have the seven bowls, but more so, we have the seven seals, and then within that, we have the seven trumpets, and also within that are the seven bowls. And so it's all happening together, and yet, they're also happening in some sort of chronological work within each unit that they exist in. And so that's kind of what we're seeing is everything happening within the same period of time, but from different views, different perspectives, different intensifications of what is going on. But first, before we get to the trumpets in chapter 8, we start by opening the seventh seal— and the seventh seal, there is silence in heaven for a half an hour. This seems quite strange after we read, the, we read the first six seals two weeks ago. And we're like, oh my goodness. We take a look and we see war happening on the earth. We see peace is broken. We see famine. Then we see the, the cosmos start to come down on the earth. And we see kings and, and, and servants all alike trying to hide from the wrath of God in the mountains. And they say, I would rather die by the rocks falling on me than experience the wrath of God. But we didn't really have a great picture of what that wrath was that was happening. And so that's what we get in the seven trumpets is we see what kind of wrath is actually happening in that time period. But before then, we have the seventh seal that gets opened and there's just hush. Silence. And John says for about half an hour, and it's this moment of realization that God 
is so worthy, so magnificent, that everything that is taking place is so awesome, as in the root awe, as in kind of invokes a little bit of fear, but also invokes a sense of wonder. And so there's hush. A couple weeks ago, before preaching, we took a moment of just silence to prepare our hearts for what God was going to do. And I think in the same way as that seventh seal is open, he's preparing John's heart and, and heaven's heart for what they're about to see with the seven trumpets that are about to sound. But for us right now, we have to understand that there are times in our life that we really need to just hush. I talk too much. I tell God too much. Not that you can tell God too much, but I talk about myself to God too much. Instead of just allowing hush to fill my heart, what does God want to reveal to me that he can't because I won't stop talking to him? Hush. Take a moment in your week to start to silence yourself before the Lord to see what he wants to reveal to you. And so here is what's happening is as hush happens for about half an hour and then you see this, this image of the angel with the bowl, the censer of incense, like prayers lifted up to God. Doesn't that sound familiar? If we go back to the fifth seal where the prayers of the martyrs under the altar were being lifted up like incense before God. And so once again, we should start saying, oh, this is a, a different perspective of the same thing. I'm seeing it again. You're supposed to be taken back to see, okay, so something is happening that's already happened, but it's a different perspective. And so it goes up the prayers of the saints before God. And then the angel took the censer, and then he filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it onto the earth. And then followed peals of thunder, sounds of flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. We're going to see that three times. We see it at the end of the seven seals. We see it at the end of the seven trumpets. And we see it at the end of the seven bowls. Not because it happens three different times. Because it's a demonstration of the same thing happening from three different perspectives. And that is where the end has come with the seven seals. And then we turn to the seven trumpets. And then he saw seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And the first sounded and came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. And then I could go on and talk about more. We're not going to do that because today we're just taking a 30,000 overlook, 30,000 foot overview of what's happening in these two passages because there's too much. And if you want to have a deeper conversation, come visit me. We'll have a deeper conversation. But here's what I want us to really see. What I want us to focus on is actually in verse 13 of chapter 8. 
when I talked about that eagle flying in mid-heaven, right? And what does that eagle say with a loud voice? He says, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. We've heard something similar before, but it wasn't woe, woe, woe. It was holy, holy, holy. The, the, the three times holy God, the three times holy worship that the elders and the angels pour out to the Lord on his throne is now contrasted to those that sit on their own thrones in the earth. It isn't holy, holy, holy to them. It is woe, woe, woe. Woe, woe, woe. Now when you hear that woe, it, it takes me to two places. The first is I start thinking about the woes of the Pharisees that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 23. And he talks about these woes, mind you, right before he tells the disciples about the end and how it is coming. And so it's woe to the Pharisees and to the scribes. He says, starting in verse 13, and I'm not going to read it all, but there's a lot. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, and therefore you will receive even greater condemnation. Woe to you, because you travel around on sea and make to one, you make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, your blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is obliged. Woe to you, you hypocrites, verse 23, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting others. Woe to you, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Woe to you, for you like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of a dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding blood of the prophets. Woe to you, so you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So the first thing I hear when I hear woe, woe, woe of the eagle's voice is I hear the woes of Jesus to the Pharisees. And it's a warning. It's a, it's, a, it's a warning to not just us, but to the people of the world that we need to be aware that our hearts are not right. They are not righteous. And oftentimes, it can be religious people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees that think that they're right with God because of the things that they do from an outward appearance, but their inward heart is nothing but wickedness. Don't let that discourage you. Because the reason that he gives the woes, even in Revelation, 
is so that we would be made aware that there is wickedness in our hearts and that we are to repent. How do I know this? This is my favorite. Isaiah chapter 6. This is Isaiah chapter 6. And in the year of King Uzziah's death, this is Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and and the train of his robe was filling the temple. And there were seraphim all around him. And they called out to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy. There's that thrice holy God against the three times woe toward people. But then what does Isaiah say as he sees this amazing, splendorous Lord on his throne lifted up and the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy. He then says in verse 5, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am broken. I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts, And one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Doesn't this sound familiar? Was not fire taken from the altar and then poured out upon the earth? Is there not an opportunity offered for repentance even in the last days? And when he took it to his mouth, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Here's what I want us to see. And I told you, I was going to try to keep this short. I was going to get us out of here by noon. Isn't that a miracle? Even in the last days, as God is pouring out his wrath, and remember, we've talked about this again and again, wrath isn't poured out on the sealed saints of God. And it said that again when it says in the trumpets that the locusts were not permitted to harm those with the seal of God. Those who follow Christ do not experience the wrath of God because Jesus accepted God's wrath on our behalf on the cross. Amen. But even for those that have not yet repented and accepted Jesus, the woes are a reminder you still have time. Even as God is executing his justice and judgment upon the earth in the final moments of history, he has not neglected to give a way out. He has not neglected to give a way out. That is how good God is. And that is how amazing his justice is. And we cannot separate God's justice and mercy. They have to exist together. In a world where we want to separate God's love from God's justice and say God is all love, he's just going to forgive everything, Revelation clearly reveals that not to be true. God cannot both cannot separate his love and justice. To be a fully loving God means to be a fully just God. And those who are receiving his wrath deserve it, and that is loving. And it's particularly loving to the saints that were martyred for their faith and belief in Jesus. That's what all this ends up being an image of, is as the prayers of the saints go up before God, Lord, how long? Do we have to wait until we receive justice for being murdered? 
And God says, wait no more. But just know, I'm still giving an out for those on earth if they receive me. We have to be able to accept that in our hearts as well. Because the reality is we are just as undeserving as every murderer in this world that has accepted Jesus. We too are undeserving of receiving Jesus and yet he gave himself on our behalf. And he can give himself on behalf of those in the last days. But if you needed maybe a little bit more to that, but read and understand this. Chapter 9, 20 and 21. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons, the idols of gold, of silver, of brass, and of stone, and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thievery. This is the sad thing. Repentance is given as an opportunity, but they still don't take it. And this is the warning to us who can be so hard of heart sometimes. I can be so stubborn. Don't let God's opportunity for you right now to pass by and repent for whatever you're holding, whatever you're holding on to. We were just talking in our spiritual growth this morning with elders. We need to be more intentional about doing spiritual inventories in our lives. We need to be more intentional about examining ourselves and saying, God, where is it that I need to grow? Where is it that you want me to go next? Okay, I've worked out this thing, but I've still got this anger in my heart. How do I work out anger? God, I still have bitterness in my heart. How do I work out bitterness? Lord, I still have anxiety in my life. How do I work out anxiety? Lord, I still deal with depression every day. How do I start pursuing you to root out depression? Lord, I still have whatever it is, whatever lust, whatever it might be that resides within you, how are you allowing the Lord to show you right now as he talks about judgment in the end times, begin to work out salvation in yours? Because being saved is not a one-time work. It's a continuous work. Because Paul says that we are being saved. We are saved and yet being saved. It's a continual work of the Holy Spirit at work within us because we were given, as we talked about last week, the Holy Spirit as a seal from God within us. And so the Holy Spirit is in you and therefore the Holy Spirit is working in you to bring about more and more the image of Christ in your life. And so even as we read chapter 8 and chapter 9 and we read about judgment and wrath being poured out on non-believers, but they're given an opportunity to repent even though they choose not to, let us as believers read this and say, my goodness, isn't God so merciful? Even toward those who we would say don't deserve it even more so toward us who have received it. I want to give it back to you, God. 
And so I'm going to repent and I'm going to confess whatever it might be that's holding me back from the next steps you want me to take in my life toward you. Amen? Let's pray. Good and gracious God, lead us and guide us through the power of your Holy Spirit toward all repentance. Even as we continue to see judgment poured out on the earth, we are reminded that it's not toward us, those who follow you, but it is toward those who do not follow you and have set themselves as a kingdom against you. Lord, even we as followers can be guilty of wanting to set up our own little kingdoms and trying to have control in our lives. But Lord, break that down on our behalf that we may come to you and give it all back and say, Lord, it's your kingdom. It's your life. You're in control. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.